0: On this episode of the ROI podcast, we are going back into the vault to pull up an old episode that talks about how to lead your team through disruptive life events. Clearly 2020 and now 2021 is bringing many challenges against us as leaders, as families, even us personally. So we thought it'd be a great idea to take a step back, take a deep breath and find ways that you can lead yourself and your team through disruptive life events. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelley School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, alongside Associate Dean Phil Powell. As you know, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. And before we jump to the content, I want to take a moment just to welcome all of our first-time listeners to the show. Just to say welcome to the Kelley family. For those of you who have questions, if you're wrestling through a tough leadership decision or you just know of a great guest for our show, be sure to shoot us an email to roipod, that's roipod at iupui.edu. All right, so on this episode, we're sitting down with Liesl Murtis, an empathy consultant and founder of Handle With Care HR Solutions. She works to empower forward-thinking companies to support employees with empathy and compassion as they experience disruptive life events. She also hosts her own podcast called Handle With Care Podcast. Liesl, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I want to start and talk about this concept of empathy in the workplace. Why is this so important, especially today?
1: I think it's especially important today, um, well, on a number of factors, but let's start with the labor market. So right now, an unemployment is at a really low level, and companies of all sizes are fighting to attract and retain some of the best talent. Um, You see that in management, IT, a range of different sectors. They're offering kombucha on tap and ping pong tables in the break room. And a huge aspect actually of caring well for people is the support that you give them or that you don't give them when they go through disruptive life events. And that's a purposefully broad term. Um, That could encompass a death, which is where we usually go when we think about grief, but it could also be a relationship transition or the difficult diagnosis that an aging parent just got or relocating is those things that just kind of knock you off your feet. Um, So it's important because of the labor market. It's important also because there's a real cost to American businesses. In 2003, the Grief Recovery Institute did one of the first studies where they tried to put actual numbers to the cost to American businesses annually because of grief, and they weren't just looking at death. They were looking at a denied promotion or the death of a pet. They were looking at this wide range of things that happen that result in perhaps people showing up at work but not really being present because maybe they're so distracted or they're searching WebMD to try to get information, all the way to people who are so mishandled by their workplace that they quit, and then you're having to recruit and retrain. And at the time, they put that number at $75.1 billion in annual loss to American companies. If you adjust that for inflation, in 2019 dollars, that's an estimated... 100 billion dollar cost to american companies if we don't handle this well so i think uh empathy consultancy has especially a place today
0: and i think too what's interesting is seeing how cultures change because it used to be um you would go to work and you would have your work life you'd come home you'd have your family life and it was rare that those two worlds ever intersected especially in old models of culprit corporate culture. Um, you know. So how are you breaking some of those barriers to kind of invite both personal and professional relationships in a workplace?
1: Great question. Um, I would say that we're not actually on the leading edge of changing that. That is a change that has already been occurring. I'm um, one of the oldest segments of the generational um, segment that's called Millennials. So I'm going to reference my younger siblings and what I've seen about them. As they approach their work, there's much more of this sense of like, my work fits within my holistic self. Like it's one part of my identity and the purpose that they bring to it and that need for the company that they work for to reflect some of those aspects of purpose and presence um, is really something that is being articulated a lot more. And that sort of a culture shift from the expectations that you know maybe more of a, a baby boomer or older generation had of this segmentation, um, they're already shifting. And especially for that younger population, which is going to become the dominant sector of the workforce before too long, Um, to miss them in these areas is to really miss them. And on the other side, those people who maybe previously would have said, hey, I'm in my lane, this is what I do, this is my work, like please don't ask me about what's going on at home, like how intrusive. They're going to be having more of these disruptive life events. It is the reality of aging that whether it's caring for their own elderly parents or facing their own health diagnoses, um, this is going to be a lot more in front of people as they age.
0: Now, take us back. Let's let's kind of go into the Handle with Care journey and talk about your own personal journey and how this company came to fruition.
1: Yeah, well, it has a significant uh, overlap, actually, with the Kelly School of Business. So, I got an offer of a great scholarship from Kelly. I said yes in 2010, and I found out a week later that I was unexpectedly pregnant with my third child, a little girl that we named Mercy Joan. Um, but I thought, that's that's okay. Like, we're good at multitasking. I'm still going to go. I'm going to lead this like student trip to Ghana. I remember talking with the director of student services and really selling her, like, I'm going to be able to take this newborn baby overseas on this consulting trip. It's, it's not going to be a big deal. Um, we'd, we'd lived overseas in Nairobi previously, and I was like, I've taken little babies overseas. You can totally let me go. And they said, well, Okay. Um, but I found out in October, so I was right in the middle of like accounting and finance classes, found out that Mercy had a pretty profound birth defect. Um, it was a neural tube defect. And if it's lower, it causes the condition spina bifida. If it's higher, it causes anencephaly, which is always terminal. Um, but where it was for Mercy was she, the base of her skull had not closed. So she had this large fluid filled sac on the back of her head. And what the physician said was, there are a range of surgical outcomes, and we actually, we don't know. Um, This could be something that is operable, and she could have fairly minimal um, residual effects. Or this could be something that's terminal, and really we won't know until you have an outside the womb MRI. Um, So with that broad range of uncertainty, we were meeting with hospice care, we were meeting with neurosurgeons, um, we were waiting and delivered mercy on February 15th in 2011. It was right at the start of spring break, and it was really clear um, that doing any surgical intervention would be doing things to her and not for her. Um, She had this lack of connectivity between the hemispheres of her brain. Um, Her spinal column was hollow, and she couldn't breathe on her own. That was horrible. I mean, it's awful she lived for eight days um and died and it's just a searing um experience and as it as it relates to this work uh it was also the opportunity to observe external to my own experience as i reflected back on it the people who really intuitively like they knew what to do they knew how to be there um i'll never forget Gail from Student Services, who came um, and she showed up in the hospital room, and she had a handwritten note from the dean of the school. She had a gift. Um, she said to me, Would you like me to let all of your professors know so you're not having to tell everybody again and again as you get back to school? And I hadn't even thought that that would be something that I would need or know how to ask for. Um, and then there was the funeral. Phil, you came to the funeral with Gail. Um, a number of people from my MBA cohort, you know I didn't I was barely functioning. Um, just waking up and going through the day. I didn't think like, oh, I should invite these people or I should let them know, but it was so meaningful to have them there. Um, those sorts of gestures that, although they by no means like made it better, um, my daughter was still dead they did make the prospect of a week and a half later when I needed to come back and actually show up to what was my place of employment, the Kelly school to think that that was even possible. Like, okay, maybe I can do this. Um, on the other hand, it was also the opportunity to like see the people who, I don't even think they knew how much they missed me when they missed me, you know, it just went right over their heads. Um, and so that was my first observational experience of being like oh yeah this really matters and there's kind of this bogey factor like some people seem to do it really well and some people seem to be totally clueless and is that just the way of the world or is there a way that we can actually train people to be better in these things
0: I think it's too for a lot of leaders I mean that it's such a Loss is never an easy thing to deal with, especially when you're trying to be professional and you're trying to balance that relationship of being, having like this, you know, leadership role with people that you have influence with. And it can just be really awkward for a lot totally. of, a lot of leaders to, to even know where to begin. You know, so, so from, from your vantage point, you know, how did this, um, handle with care? Like this idea, you know, come about through that. And when was like that moment of, you know what, this is something that I need to help leaders overcome.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. And it gets to the reality of, you know, you said people can feel uncomfortable. It also usually catches leaders by surprise, right? You don't show up on a Tuesday morning And nobody puts on your schedule for the day like, okay, and you're going to have to manage Robert who's going to come in and tell you that his wife has ovarian cancer. And they don't give you a class for that in your MBA program. And it's unsettling. and You don't know what to do. And you find yourself like scrambling in that moment. And either people tend to default to two things. One, they think, oh, my gosh, I don't want to say something dumb. I don't want to make it worse. I'm not going to say anything. And they, they say, well, they mumble something like maybe you should talk to HR about that and hope that it never comes up again. Or they find themselves in real time offering whatever like cliche or tired phrase was peddled to them when they were in some situation. And neither of which is like super helpful. And so as the moment of when I realize like, hey, this is an idea that has legs, um, it began with. I began with talking with people within my community who had experienced disruptive life events. Um, I also, my youngest is a little guy named Moses and he has had to have a couple of open heart surgeries at Riley hospital here in town. Um, he's doing really well, but he'll need continued surgical intervention. So between the loss of mercy and Moses's condition and just the reality of like when you have something sad happen, um, you tend to start hearing more stories. I started talking to people and asking them, what was your experience specifically in the workplace? And there were a couple of people who said, oh my gosh, my workplace was great. But a lot of people had these stories of, I was missed in this way. And the way that they dealt with my medical bills and my leave was so atrocious. And I can't believe that that person said that. So I was collecting sort of this qualitative data. And I started thinking, I really should examine what the existing support systems are. So I started incorporating into that meeting with different HR leaders and managers and hearing about their pain points and looking at what's really in place. And basically in the most forward-thinking companies right now, um, if somebody goes through something hard, you'll have this overlap with an HR professional. And lots of these HR professionals, they get some good technical training, but I've been hearing again and again like, I've never had a class on this. There's not a good resource. I'm just, I'm reaching out to my network or I'm going from what I know. So there's not a good equipping for them. Um, Beyond that, someone might have a couple of days of bereavement leave because that's not guaranteed, nor is it standardized in America. And they might have access to an employee assistance program, which is this external subsidized counseling, um, which doesn't really touch on the reality of culture building within an organization, like do the people around you actually have tools to support you well? So as I was beginning to put together that um, kind of landscape, I realized that there were some substantial gaps, and then I began looking, okay, what What sorts of individual facilitators or writers are doing good work? And that was where um, I also realized that as much as there are individuals doing some good work, um, nothing has been put together in a solution that can be deployed at scale in a really like real-time digestible way. Because it's one thing to try to train people eight months before something happens, but really in the midst of a crisis, what somebody needs is real-time equipping, like tell me 30 seconds before I'm going to see this person, what I should do. Um, so that planted the seed of what we're presently doing at Handle With Care and the longer-range vision of what we're hoping to build.
0: And I know it's it's really unique because a lot of consultants maybe just sit on the outskirts of something, observe or have some personal you know experience with it. But for you specifically, I mean, you walk through you know, a really tough season in life, like a lot of employees that don't expect it as much as the leaders within the organization don't expect it. So what were some of the principles that grounded you or kind of helped you through that you're now kind of implementing within Handle With Care?
1: One of the first principles is just the importance of reaching out. I think a lot of times people have this initial paralysis of thinking... Exactly what I said. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I'm not going to do anything. Or they can think, I don't want to bring it up because it's really just going to make you sad. And the reality was I I was already profoundly sad. And what one of my teammates or people within my classroom setting or my professors, when they would say something like, I heard that your daughter died and I'm so sorry, um, that didn't make me sadder. It made me feel cared for. Um And that's something that I hear is a pretty resonant theme. People want the hard thing that they're going through to be acknowledged. Um, And that term, to have it be acknowledged, is also a leading principle into a second point of something that's meaningful. Um, So many times as people are trying to offer comfort or something substantial, um, let's say like they get over that threshold of saying, I'm going to say something. Um, And then what they need to do pause then um what they find themselves doing is they offer um some story about their own encounter with loss like immediately like oh you're going through a divorce I went through a divorce in my 30s he was such a dog it was the worst thing in my life you know they and what they don't realize in that moment that they've actually taken the attention off that person and put it on themselves and their own experience um there are all kinds of things like that that we go through in these training sessions of saying that actually is not accomplishing what you want to do. What you want to do is show care and support for the person. And one of the best ways to do that, especially in a first interaction is just to have this initial acknowledgement. This was really hard and I'm sorry.
0: You know, at least uh, hearing your story again, cause I was part of that Both you and I are in Bloomington at the time. And your business model truly comes from a place of authenticity. You've experienced this. And as I hear you talk, here's my question in that, or I want to get your response. At an employee's deepest time of need, the way that the organization reacts is the ultimate test of the culture. It's almost the litmus test of what separates the great places to work from those that are not. And we know that at the end of the day, most people leave their job, leave an organization, not because of salary, but because of the way they've been treated. So do, do you see this as an ultimate litmus test of, of great culture and and that organizations really are, are truly invested in their employees?
1: I think it's a great way of saying it. The, the stakes are high, right? When, when somebody is at this point of crisis and... Whether we phrase it as an ultimate litmus test, um, because the stakes are so high, the the benefit of doing it well, the people that I've talked to who were well cared for in the midst of their grief um, will say things like, I, I had to leave that organization five years later because of X, Y, or Z, but they took such good care of me. I would do anything for them. I mean, I, that's part of how I speak about the Kelly School. I speak so glowingly of The care that I received, anyone for the rest of my life, if they ask me about culture or people within the institutions, I was well cared for. Um, My recommender score is so high. Um, On the flip side, when we talk about the cost to organizations, um, perhaps one of the best ways to illustrate that is um, an encounter that I had within the last couple of weeks. I was talking at a networking event with a woman and I was telling her some of the broad outlines of what I'm doing And I could see it in her eyes, this connection. And she goes, oh my gosh, I wish that my employer would have had this 15 years ago. And she had moved to Indianapolis. She had been recruited for pharmaceutical sales. She was a rep. She came to town, um, single mom. And her only son got sick. He got really sick. Like, he's in the hospital. And as she described it, he had no idea if he was going to make it or not. And the um, representative from the company that she worked for was on the other end of the line with her, and she said, oh, my gosh, he was just so concerned about crossing the T's and dotting the I's, and I was a new hire, and there was no space, and I hadn't qualified for any paid time off, and I wasn't on the health insurance plan. And he was so tone deaf and so mishandled her in that moment as she's in the hospital room that she hangs up the phone, and not only did she decide that she would quit this organization, she decided that she was quitting pharmaceutical sales entirely. And so that's, that's her story and that's its own thing. But I just imagine also like that individual on the other side of the phone, if you could have written out for him, okay, you're going to bobble this conversation and it's going to have actually this bottom line cost your company, this new hire that you've just recruited. Like if you put, you know, that $60,000 cost over the next couple of months, um, He probably would have been a little bit more purposeful or done it a little bit differently or been receptive to somebody saying, hey, if you just I mean, if you say it with that different inflection here, like you're not going to lose that. Not to mention the fact that 15 years later, the reputational cost to the organization that I won't name, but that she was more than willing to name, you know, a decade and a half after it happened is huge. Like you don't ever get that back.
0: I want to talk to, you know, you and for, for all of our leaders that are listening that have to wrestle with these, you know, have teams who, like you said, on a Tuesday, you're not expecting someone to come in and to talk about the loss of, you know, a, a beloved family member and having to field those questions. So what advice can you offer or what training tips do you have for, for managers and leaders um, to engage those conversations, um, even though it may be awkward and it may be really hard?
1: There is some specificity that depends on the kind of disruption that the person's talking about. It is one thing if it is uh, the death of a family member, which is a little bit more discreet. It's another thing if it is a divorce, which is ongoing, and you're getting one side of the the story. So, with it, with a caveat that in the trainings and equippings I do, you go into some of the nuance of that. Um, one of the one of the key things that I I would say is this this tool of empathy consulting is one part of a bigger cultural matrix. If you don't within your company already have things in place where you're showing that you value your people. And that is in all sorts of aspects of team building and communication and training and benefits. Like it's a holistic picture. If you have a lot of dysfunction already and you say, Oh, I'm going to hire in this workplace empathy consultant and they'll make it all better. Um, that it, it's going to fall flat. You know. If your manager has never given a hoot about your well-being and suddenly um, when your child gets sick, they're there saying, oh, I really care. You know, How are you doing? Um, it's going to be tone deaf. As to just basic um, things, there are two ways you can never go wrong. Um, one is through, because people have really basic needs in the midst of going through disruption. They still need to eat. Um, and they don't want to cook at those moments, Um, if you can build something in, so this is what we talk about sometimes in consulting, can you standardize? Like, we're going to work with DoorDash or these three other areas, and we're going to give you six meal deliveries over the next quarter. You schedule them. The company just underwrites that. Another thing that um, people really don't have the bandwidth to do is clean their house. Um, We set up... Uh, arrangements with different house cleaning services to visit twice over the next quarter. Those super tangible aspects of care go a long way to meeting physical needs. And they also help, um, in companies that say, oh, maybe we're doing this in an ad hoc manner. We don't have, you know, we haven't standardized it. Um, it just lays this base, um, level. So taking care of physical needs. Another thing, um, The basic, like, equipping your people to acknowledge, hey, this hard thing is happening. And after that acknowledgement, also speaking into the person's capacity. um, Lots of times I found in my own story and other people's, people who are going through disruption, a question that they have is, like, I don't feel like myself. There's so much going on. I feel overwhelmed. Can I still do my job? I don't even know if I can still do it. Um, Sheryl Sandberg CEO of Facebook, she wrote Lean In. Her next book was Option B, written after her husband died at a relatively young age while running on a treadmill in Mexico. She addresses this sense of dislocation and self-doubt in one of her early chapters. She talks about coming in and sitting in some meeting and just feeling like she wasn't present and maybe she'd said something dumb and how important it was to have a colleague come up to her And be able to say something along the lines of, like, Cheryl, I know that this is hard and you're still really good at your job. And that meeting, like, that's a blip on the radar screen. We believe in your capacity. And that that was so meaningful to her. People also, like, they crave that from their colleagues, from their managers. So to be able to not only acknowledge that something hard is going on, but as appropriate to be able to say something like, you know, this is a really tumultuous time for you. I want to let you know, you are such an important member of our team. We value what you bring every day and we want to walk with you as you're moving towards stabilizing and thriving again and just know like we're in your corner. Um, Something like that is deeply meaningful.
0: So awesome. Thank you so much for being our guest on our show. Um, again, it's Liesl Mertes. She is the co-founder or sorry. She is the founder of uh, Handle with Care also hosts a podcast called Handle with Care. And if you'd like more, definitely check that out where you can get more topics and tips on how to learn to be more empathetic in the office and working um, with with your with your team. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, alongside Phil Powell, where we help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.